Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to another episode of Reimagining Love. On this show, we know that successful long-term relationships must be deeply intentional, composed of daily decisions, experiences, and commitments that make up a larger love story, and taking into account the cultural contexts and messaging that so often gets in our way. With this deep conviction in mind, I am so thrilled to introduce you to the work of Eve Rodsky, my guest on today's episode. Eve is working to change society one partnership at a time by coming up with a new 21st century solution to an age-old problem, women shouldering two-thirds or more of the unpaid domestic work and childcare for their homes and families. She has applied her Harvard-trained background in organizational management to ask the simple yet profound question, what would happen if we treated our homes as our most important organization? Her New York Times bestselling book, Fair Play, a gamified life management system that helps partners rebalance their domestic workload and reimagine their relationship, has elevated the cultural conversation about the value of unpaid labor and care. In the Fair Play documentary, which was created by Jennifer Seibel Newsom in partnership with Hello Sunshine, Eve takes us on her journey to change the unfair work dynamic in her own home and in society at large. As Eve spreads her message through the world, she is clear that issues around domestic labor, family rearing, and parenting are not individual problems, and therefore, their solutions shouldn't be either. We have come together to remedy these challenges with our partners and within our communities. I absolutely loved talking with Eve about invisible work, closing the gender gap, and how all of this intersects with the work of relational self-awareness. I hope you love this conversation. Hi, Eve. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. Should I call you Dr. Solomon, Alexandra? I would love for you to call me Alexandra. Yes, yes, yes. But for women who have degrees, I do like to call you by your full name at least once. So Dr. Solomon. <laughs> well, thank you. So I'm so glad you know, you and I have not met yet. And I'm just, I'm so glad that you were a yes to this conversation. I know you've got lots of demands on your time, but I also know that there are really cool intersections between the work I do and the work you do. And I know that Reimagining Love listeners are going to truly like get a ton out of hearing from you and learning from you. So thank you. Oh, I'm really happy to be here. Okay, well, so where I love to start with my guest experts is by asking you uh, my relational self-awareness question. So are you ready for the relational self-awareness question? Yes, of course. Okay. So Eve, what is a growing edge that you are currently working on in one of your important relationships? And what has it been teaching you lately? 
we're going to talk about the secret formula, Alexandra, that I believe are really key for uh, relational success and awareness. And they are boundaries, systems, and communication. And it's a practice of all three. So what I would say is this week, particularly, I'm working on communication because my partner, Seth, my husband, Seth, he was holding all the cards this weekend while I got to go on a really wonderful trip. And in fact, he was supposed to be with me on that trip, but decided to stay back because the logistics of bringing two of our children, two sons to a basketball tournament was actually too hard for the help in our lives. And so it's the communication of really coming back to for some gratitude, for thanking him for doing that. Things that we never there was never any gratitude a decade ago in our relationship around who's doing the unpaid labor of the home. So I would say this week for sure, it's about reconnecting, showing gratitude for the unpaid and um, working on communication. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. So what I want to just like highlight in that answer is you, the way that you like, this is the, this is infused throughout your work is the idea of viewing your home as your most important organization. And I think there is resistance to that idea because somehow it busts up the romantic mythology that if one needs boundaries, systems, and communication, then somehow you are not living your soulmate love story. Yeah, it's not love. It's not love if you need to invest in a practice, right, um, Alexandra, as you've debunked many times in your in incredibly important work. But yes, of course, like it should all just work. We should all just be able to, three most toxic words, the opposite of boundary systems and communication, literally the opposite, the most toxic words that I ever hear in back to the relational awareness is figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll figure mm-hmm. it out. And if we have to talk about it, write it down, renegotiate it, then somehow it's too hard. So we're doing something it's too wrong. hard. We're wrong. <gasps> it's not, we don't love each other. Yep. Mm-hmm. But your, your response of describing you and Seth navigating this basketball situation and having to make a pivot, the story is a story of love and gratitude and collaboration, which is the heart of intimacy. So in fact, it's an incredibly intimate story. I feel that way too. I mean, I could, a really intimate story that I don't get to tell on many podcasts about my work and we'll back up, but really, you know, a lot of my insights about unpaid labor in the home started with conversations around garbage. Uh, You think that that may be the least intimate conversation about why a garbage liner is not going back into the bin or why I would care or the frequency of when garbage goes out. But now that I look back 10 years later, I actually believe that those conversations around what we call and dismiss as household labor and chores are literally our humanity. And they're probably the most important intimacy conversations that we will ever have. I would love to zoom out and offer listeners because there's going to be lots of folks listening who know exactly who you are and who are like, no, 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 just get to the meat because I know Eve, I adore Eve. But I think there's going to be some people where this is the first interface with your work. And you have, I mean, as I was prepping for the interview, Fair Play comes out in 2019, New York Times bestseller. The Companion Card Deck comes out in 2020. Find Your Unicorn Space in 2021. And then this documentary this year in 2022. And it is the most comprehensive and loving offering to couples and families that I can even imagine. I'm so excited that your work is out in the world. But start us off by helping us understand your why. Because as I've heard you say, you were not a little girl with your journal writing about becoming a gendered domestic labor expert when you were, uh, you know, just a little little old thing. So what's your why? How'd you get here? <laughs> well, like you said, this is, you know, my third grade, what do you want to be when you grow up board, right? It probably said veterinarian, Alexandra did not say expert on the gendered division of labor. And I will say even as late as, you know, 21, when I would sit in I remember Elizabeth Warren had us in our Harvard Law School orientation talk about what we wanted to be or do with our law degree. And it was always in some sort of justice work, but never gender justice because I'm Gen X. And we were taught that our education can get us out. We were taught, you know, shut your mouth. What do you have to complain about? You're graduating at rates that that men never graduated at. You have more opportunities than any other generation of women behind you. Just be grateful. So I was never taught to look at things through a gendered lens. That was a real mistake. 
it's a real mistake. Even though as we start to evolve our understanding of gender, gender roles are extremely, extremely powerful in this country. And so we need to think about and understand how they impact our lives. And the way that I look at this work is really as all, I'm sure you will tell me, right, that research is me-search. But this all started for me with a profound and deep abandonment from my workplace and my husband and at the same time. And it was after my second son, Ben, was born, when I had so many dreams I was going to be president and senator and Nick City dancer. I've talked about that before. I literally wrote that in the journal that I thought I could be all three at once because you could legislate during the day and still be president and issue executive orders at night and dance in the iconic Madison Square Garden on the weekends. I had so many, I was bursting with dreams and this idea of smashing all of these glass ceilings. And really what I found myself 13 years later after that peak eve of dreams moment 13 years later you know i really found myself not smashing any any glass ceilings uh but really smashing just peas <laughs> peas for a toddler zach while while watching and raising a newborn ben and at the same time the abandonment from my workplace taking away my direct reports when i was on maternity leave with ben telling me if i wanted to continue breastfeeding it would be in a broom closet leaving that workplace, thinking that I did that voluntarily instead of realizing that I was forced out along the same time of Seth's sending me texts like, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries and really starting to define me as the fulfiller of his smoothie needs. And I had become the default, or as I call in fair play, the she fault, even though this happens to other other family structures as well. I want to emphasize that I absolutely center the heteronormative constructs here on purpose, because that's where so many of our assumptions happen. But the structured decision-making tools that replace assumptions of fair play apply to all family structures. But to get there, I had to understand why all the assumption was that it would be on me. Or as one woman said to me in one of my interviews, why is it that the whole world believes I have a magical vagina that whispers to me at night what my husband's mother (laughs) wants for Christmas? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be a bad thing. Just a little whispery vagina. <laughs> yes. So I was thinking, can we make like a magic eight ball? We need a whispery penis. Right, right. Do we have a magic eight ball that you just shake it up and you're like, what is my mother-in-law want for Christmas? Oh, yes. The vagina just uh-huh. spews out that magic. Yeah. Uh-huh. I love it. <laughs> so that is it. So being fed up and understanding that I was at a crossroads in my own marriage and my own career, of feeling psychologically and physically abandoned from my workplace and my partner. And then I had this really interesting notion because we live in America and we don't have paid leave and federal paid leave. We don't have universal childcare. So this idea of what constructs do we raise our kids in, which I'm so excited, you know, Alexandra, I get to hopefully, maybe I get to talk in one of your classes about this, but when you are living in America, we have such little supports and social safety net for parents or for caregivers at any stage that what, what I started to hear was, oh yeah, well, you're going to be abandoned by your partner or, you know, like, yeah, you know, blah, blah, blah. Don't expect Seth to do X, Y, Z. Um, there's not much for him to do since you're breastfeeding. I started to be dismissed, like I said, from my workplace. But I remember holding on tight to this idea that once I got into preschool, Once I got into a school community and my kids went to school, I kept hearing it's going to get easier. So I got my kids to school and I remember, oh, this is going to be my community. I'm so excited for these people because I'm hearing since we have no social safety net, these are the people that are going to help me with carpool. This is the community that's going to be at our kids' weddings. And I was so excited to get there. And I remember the first day at this preschool that we got into that goes to sixth grade, the preschool teacher echoed these sentiments saying, these are the most important people you're going to know. This is your first child. You're in a toddler transition program. It, of course, was all women and a couple of gay fathers. And these are the people that are going to support you the next 10, 20 years and are going to know you better than anyone's ever known you. And I remember looking down at the same time at the name tag that I was wearing, Alexandra, and it said Zachary Rodsky's mom. 
Didn't even have your name. So I kept thinking, these are the people that are going to know me better than anyone's ever known me. They don't even know my fucking name. Uh And so Uh that's when I realized that I was in a place of overwhelm and erasure. The, Mm -hmm. The two probably worst feelings to feel and then feeling them simultaneously was when I said, like, I can't live like this anymore. Oof. Yeah. That was your crisis. This cannot persist. Yeah. Can't live like this anymore. Yeah. Uh-uh. I mean, what you do in your work, I, what I think resonates, one of the things that resonates so deeply is that you seamlessly go from the internal, what was happening inside of you, the experience of erasure and overwhelm, what was playing out relationally between you and Seth, you were watching these patterns sink in because of course they did because you, the two of you made your family against the backdrop of Of generations and generations. And then that larger piece of the systems that have done such a magnificent job. And you do this particularly well in the film of talking about the step-by-step way in which a problem, which is a systemic problem has been so convincingly and sneakily and totally sold to women as an individual problem. It is an individual problem, not a systemic problem. Who does it serve when every woman walks around thinking that they just have to figure out their own particular unique solutions? And when they don't, it's because somehow they are falling short. Who benefits? And by the way, by the way, you know what it is also on top of that is the people who are even more progressive or who consider themselves feminist or who are raised like I did to believe that we were in these positions of equality or equity or power, then the shame, Alexandra, because even the feminist women, when I say, please discuss this, I can't be the only one out here talking, like throwing Seth out here and writing books about him, like talk about these things. And what so many of the feminist women said to me was, it's just too shameful. It's just too shameful to know that I am doing it all at home when I'm out there representing to the world that I am, I have an equal partnership or I'm a feminist. And so I said, so instead you're going to lie and make it worse for people like me who thought you had figured it out when no one has really figured it out. So I think just to remember that there's also that shame aspect because we're supposed to have figured this out or have married the perfect men as uh, Sheryl Sandberg told us to. And when it doesn't work out that way, when we don't know that on average, All men, even if you think you're married to a wonderful man or partnered with them and you're a woman, you identify as a woman, it is men do on average five to 15 hours a week less, less after kids come. That's just what I want people to understand so they don't feel like it's their fault. It is not your fault that we end up in these situations of overwhelm and and societal erasure. That's right. The piece you're speaking about being Gen X lands, I mean, I'm Gen X also, and I think that is so right, is like the be grateful for what's possible because it's not what your mom, you know, my my mother-in-law would tell me like her mom had told her, go to college to get your MRS, right? Like that's how close we are from that generation. And she felt, you know, her choices were to become a teacher or a nurse. So then compared relative to her, the world was my oyster. And so whatever I couldn't figure out, was clearly on me because if the world's my oyster, if I can have it all, whatever I haven't figured out. And so you're right. And the shame and and for keeping the home at home so that when we're in the workplace, it seems like we're fully here. We've got it all figured out. You're right. And the more, and shame keeps the problem atomized rather than bringing it together. That's so. Yeah. That's how I felt for sure. I love too that you're telling us like, okay, obviously the larger systems have got to change, but we also cannot wait around for that. You say the front line of this revolution is in our homes. Yes, I believe that. I believe that, Alexandra, look, we have to breathe even Uh if the air is polluted, right? So I've always believed in a both and framework of a mutual aid framework of this idea that local and community can really start very, very micro and small, as well as we can, of course, uh, fight for the the larger systems to change. And you can do both. So I believe in this both-end framework. But for me, Fair Play was really a book written to women. And as my mother and I, we would argue about that, and all the way back to 2011 when I started this work, was why do you want to write to women? You know, aren't they the ones who are being oppressed by this issue? Write to men. And what I said to my mother over the past 10 years, who she's a professor of sociology and social work and social change. So we have these really interesting conversations. She's a macro social worker. So she's always thinking about the macro issues. 
but we love social workers to shout out to all the LCSWs out there. hundred percent. Yes, oh. yes. And so what I say is that, again, exactly, it's a both and. And so what Fair Play was, it's become a movement. But mm-hmm. really what it started as was saying, A, normalizing the things we're talking about, that overwhelm and erasure is sort of this permission to be unavailable from our roles, that we have to be as women parents, partners, and or professionals, and that's it. We're given permission to do those three things, but God forbid you try to go outside of that to reclaim any consistent interest in your own life. That's when you're going to get all of that pushback. And so it really normalizes that. It teaches us and it helps us unlearn why we got into this place where we don't have the permission to be unavailable from those roles. And when we do try to push back, we feel the guilt and shame or we have a hard time asking for what we need. And then it goes into solutions. But but it's the kind of book where it almost needs a trigger warning because for mm-hmm. me at least, and we're doing this, you know, in one hour, this is, I'll call it our 101, but to really understand that this, what you're hearing today, it may be the first time you've ever heard things like this. Mm-hmm. And so it's okay to feel uncomfortable. It's okay to feel angry, to feel resentful, to hate uh-huh. me for, for bringing these issues up. Because sometimes when you unleash consciousness, it's very uncomfortable, as we know. And I just wanted to give our listeners the grace to understand that this is not an easy conversation. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. That grace is vital. And it's very different... I think it's like, we know there's a massive problem with caregiving and systems that support caregiving in the U.S. Like we know that we've seen the numbers, we've heard that, but there's something about the way in which you just make that bridge so tight and so clear and we can't look away. That is right. It is uncomfortable. And I do think rage, I mean, I think very often, unfortunately, rage does need to be (laughs) the first stage. We don't want to get stuck there. And we don't have to get stuck there, in fact, because what you did next was you, you created a system. This project for me started when I was in that depth of, as we talked about, that despair. Every Gen X or people who have trauma in their early life who were, psych, you know, parental ch- children or people who have been taught to do it themselves like I was, were told education is the way out. It's sort of the American dream. So I put my head down. I sort of got educated. I got out of my single parent household. And kept on, you know, moving along the chain of degree after degree after perfectionism. And I think what happens ultimately is we think lists can solve us or is that we can get out of this quagmire ourselves, but we can't. And really the only way to do this is to have the system around you, whether it's your partner, your in-laws, your schools, really to start adopting this idea that it's not all on you. And that has been the hardest thing to realize that I wish this could just have been, this started as a should I do spreadsheet. I thought um, naively that sending Seth a list of everything I did, which ultimately became 98 tabs and 2000 items of invisible work that I collected over nine months. And by the way, Alexandra, that was my way out. The first, And this is why I wish I had you. I wish I had your podcast. I wish I had you on Instagram. In 2008 and 2011, we did not, Um, It seems bizarre that we did not have any of these systems, even to hear from experts like you. It took the past 10 years to really unpack and and to move forward into a systems-based approach that is not a list. That's right. It's empirically derived. You went from the ground up. You collected, as you said, 98 tabs, 2,000 pieces of data to develop a system that goes far beyond a chore charge or a list. And it is so 
it's so thoughtful. And you, it is a love, you know, in terms of your mom, the debate between you and your mom about is it for men or is it for women? You're very clear and it, and it reads very clearly. This is a love letter to men. I sit with couples that by and large straight couples week after week in my office and they are befuddled and overwhelmed at their wives' irritation and annoyance and slow simmering rage and resentment, right? And they, because in their minds, and this is true, it's not just in their minds, they do far more than they saw their dads ever do, right? And they try. And when she asks, he will. And so it becomes, it, it feels deeply like confusing very often for men about like, but I'm, but, 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 and I look at my brother and my peers and I'm doing more, I'm doing more than my dad, but this really is a love letter to men. And it's so comprehensive and the approach is one that couples really can embark on together, no matter their gender, but especially for heterosexual couples where that, where, where the roles are just. The assumptions are making an ass out of you and me, as my son would say. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And you, by the way, I loved the way that queer love stories were woven into the movie. And it was not in a patronizing way or an idealized way, but it was in a way of saying the system you've developed is to be used by any and all of us. And when you enter into a relationship, needing to create something from nothing, right? That there is, that there's not that heavy layering queer couples for all of the challenges and all of the marginalizations, there there are measures of freedom and flexibility that are possible when you don't have one male body and one female body going right in off the bat. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the beauty of this system, what Fair Play became was it evolved into two questions I had to ask Alexandra to really, I'll get a little, since you are a professor, I will also just get a little uh, more nerdy here than I often do. But there were two things that were data hurdles for me in collecting data about the issue. We know that men overreport what they do, and we know that women underreport. And what was happening to me is as I tried to start collecting data, because I was really interested in this understanding that what, instead of losing myself to this overwhelming erasure, or eat, pray, loving out of my life, which was a big narrative at the time, could I ask the question that I've been working on for my whole career, which is I work for families that look like the HBO show Succession, Alexandra, and people should feel bad for me. But what's great about those families is I'm working (laughs) on their family systems. And I often facilitate many, many conversations with therapists with them, and they go deep on attributions and family rage. And I talk about systems level governance. And what's so beautiful is that we bring these families from organizational dysfunction where dad's marching out of the room every time second son speaks to grace and humor and generosity around these very organizationally complex decision-making. And so I remember thinking, well, if I know how to fix organizations or at least to practice with these families, better organizational principles, what if the home was just another organization? What if our home was our most important organization? And so then I start to look up books. Well, someone must have thought of this before. So I'd look up home organization and I was getting like organizing your junk drawer, right? So I was like, oh my God, right. I was like, no, I mean the system. And then when I realized there was nothing out there really looking at the home as an organization, I started to collect data to say, well, The boundary systems communication formula for organizations is what I use. I wonder if that can work for the home. And the systems piece was so challenging because, and this is where I'm going to nerd out a little bit, when I start to ask hetero cisgender couples, who does groceries? What I would hear is we both do. Who Mm -hmm. does pickup? We both do. And I was like, well, then why is there such resentment? And we know that women are holding two thirds or more of what it takes to run a home and family. So this both trap, of hearing the word both made it very hard to get at what was really happening. So I finally was able to crack the code of the fair play system by asking the most important question after the organizational question that I've asked in 17 countries now in over 10 years. And that was just one simple question, which was how did mustard get in your refrigerator? Mm. That question broke open the both trap. And the way it did was because I started to hear Women, even in the Nordic countries, which is always so vaguely racist that I always think we we say to people that those countries are doing it better than everybody else. Even in the Nordic countries, it were were women that were noticing that their second son, Johnny, likes yellow mustard 
with their protein, otherwise they choke. That conception phase is we get paid big bucks for that in the workplace, for noticing new ideas. And then I was also hearing that it was women getting stakeholder buy-in from what their family needed for the grocery list. And they were the ones monitoring the mustard for when it ran, ran low. They didn't call it stakeholder buy-in, but that's what I was listening for. That's planning. And so the conception and planning phases of organizational management were being done by women. And then I would hear, oh yeah, we both do it because I send my partner to the store, Eve, and he goes for the yellow mustard and he brings home spicy Dijon every fucking time. And now you want me to trust him with my living will? Well, the guy can't even bring home the right type of mustard. So then when I realized the erosion was the same erosion I talk about in regular, my regular organizational management a career, which is that when you erode an organization, you're eroding two things, accountability and trust. When you erode those two things, the organization fails. And that's what I was hearing in the home. So it was like, ding, 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 ding. Conception and planning staying with women. Execution is being done by men. The only solve to that is keeping conception, planning, and execution with one person. And then once I understood that and I broke through that data barrier, I was able to develop fair play and start to test it over the past decade. And it became revolutionary for people. And so it was such an easy insight, but it took a really long time to get to that insight. Oh, when I've heard you talk about that on another podcast, I was like, oh, every, like I could just feel all of the little puzzle pieces of my brain coming together because you're right. Like the amount of time I spend in a couples therapy session working on that exact sequence and where the breakdown happens, like you just cement it so beautifully that it's it's about the conceptualization, the planning and the execution staying with one person. Because then you also solve for the chronic discontent that women report over and over again, which is that he'll do whatever I want him to do. I just have to ask. And that becomes that like sort of conductor, director, supervisor role that doesn't really turn anybody on. It's not a sexy situation at all. I don't want to assign you tasks. Like that sounds like a terrible way for intimacy or relational love or um, respect as we talked about in the beginning of the podcast. That's right. That's right. So what you, what, what, what is so clear, like you call it the CPE, the conceptualization, the planning, the execution on any one of these tasks needs to go to one person. And that creates trust and accountability. And I will say I had this, I don't, I haven't told this story that, that much because it was a small story, but I actually think since we're going sort of deep here, I think there's this one story that there's this, I'll call them Richard and Amy, but it's really a beautiful story because it's so small. But I think it really encapsulates all of the relational stuff that we're talking about here. And like you said, sort of coaching couples through those steps. So there was this couple. And so as we said, the fair play system, we can unpack boundaries either in another podcast together or we could do it later about how, why we don't have the permission to be unavailable and what we've been conditioned to think about our time. That's the hardest part. That's the unlearning we'll do probably next. But to understand the system that is not rocket science, this one couple was really trying to do fair play. And so Richard takes on the card that's called Magical Beings. That's one of the cards in the deck. Some are more practical, like making school lunches. Others are more esoteric, like Magical Beings, because Santa, Elf on the Shelf, they take time. So Tooth Fairy is what he takes on. And he said he's going to be the Tooth Fairy. So they do this in the process of fair play. So it's not just like a list, like you take tooth fairy. No, that, that, that way fair play would just become scorekeeping another list. No, this is entering the system, understanding the ownership, really redealing the deck all together. There's steps that I go through in the book about how I walk you through it. So they go and they enter the system. It's a practice. He takes on magical beings and the tooth fairy. So they report back to me. They're one of my couples that I follow. The first time he takes over the tooth fairy, the tooth fairy doesn't come, doesn't come. So their daughter wakes up, there's no tooth fairy, okay? So what would have happened before? What Richard reported to me was that if that had happened before, he would have blamed Amy for not reminding him to put the tooth under the pillow. And Amy would have communicated to him in an all or nothing fashion that she will never trust him with anything else again because their lives are ruined. He's the worst human being alive and their child will never believe in magic again. That's what would have happened. In the fair play system, because you already know that there's going to be mistakes and that you agree to carry through your mistake in the ownership mindset. 
What Amy said is, I'm willing to try this fair play experiment and have you carry through your mistake. I will not talk about this. I will hold my tongue, not give feedback in the moment, which is one of our fair play tenants. And we will talk about this at our check-in. So between that and their check-in, what Richard tells me is, is that his daughter wakes up distraught that the tooth fairy didn't come. And so he emails toothfairy at gmail.com in front of her to say, what the hell, tooth fairy? Um, why didn't you come? During the day, during the day, he gets a response. So whoever you are out there, we love you, toothfairy at gmail.com. You are, you are saving couples' marriages. We love you. So toothfairy at gmail.com responds and says, I'm so sorry I couldn't get to your house. I'm in like a backlog of teeth, you know, like a supply chain issue with teeth. And he prints the email out for his daughter, shows it to her in the afternoon and says, look, you know, she's having supply chain issues like the rest of the world or whatever. And she couldn't get here on time. But the good news is what she's telling us is she brings double the money when she comes late. And that's it. That was the end of that story. And what I love about it, it's so small, but it just shows how one small change in the relational way you deal with things didn't, didn't escalate. He had space to breathe and to do, and it wasn't perfect. I don't think he'll ever forget again. But that that's the accountability and trust we're trying. Those are the muscles we're trying to build here. Yeah, yeah. I felt, you know, as you told that story and you got to the point about how Richard handled it, I just felt my whole chest open, right? There is, there's so much permission because it, it's not between Richard and Amy. It's between Richard and himself, Richard and his daughter, and she, Amy doesn't need to, yeah, that's, it's just, it's just, it's just so powerful. And you think about like what the kids in these fair play homes then get to witness of watching, you know, just the, the, the difference and the shift around the flexibility of gender roles, the ownership for your mistakes, even though she won't ever know that that was a right. mistake. She just, she knows the energy of all of that and that it didn't go, you know, it didn't feel funky to her. And she got, she ended up getting what she needed from it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, like I said, it's, it's not the biggest story that I tell, but I felt like this was an important one because for me, it has all those relational aspects, like you said, of his relationship with his daughter, his relationship with his partner, his relationship with himself and having that space and confidence to correct a mistake that maybe he wouldn't have been able to correct before if she had jumped in, Amy had jumped in to solve that issue. So I just really, truly love that, them and that couple and how they work through, because it's just a metaphor, it's a practice. It's like, you know, I wish I could tell you, Alexander, that you could exercise once and be fit for life because I hate exercise. I wish I could tell myself that, Mm -hmm. but fair play is the same. It's a practice. And, you know, if you're not going to, commit to it and really checking in when emotion is low and cognition is high. That's really, it's a practice of a system and a communication and holding your boundaries that you deserve a permission to be interested in your own life and unavailable. So you really need all three of those boundaries, systems, and communication for it to work. And that's why I think, you know, it can feel overwhelming, but the beauty of it is you don't have to start big. This couple started with one, you know, tooth fairy. Um, Seth and I, as we said earlier, I we started with garbage. And that's all you need to start small. Yep. Well, I want to talk about the garbage piece because I think it gets us to a couple of different points. One of which is, and this every couples therapist will tell you that, you know, the fight, like I I once did an entire couples therapy session with a couple about something that happened over a butter dish, right? And the husband would be like, oh my God, I cannot believe we're talking about the butter dish. But it's because whatever happened around the butter dish tapped into really deep old wounds about I'm not important or I can't do anything right by you and family patterns, what you saw in your home growing up. And so that's what's so powerful is this, is the domestic realm is just full of landmines slash opportunities to look at why is this so triggering? Why do we get stuck here? And it has to do with the big picture we're talking about, about gendered domestic labor, but it oftentimes has to do with the very tight, micro, tender, old history that each person brings in, which is what your that's what your garbage story really highlights, doesn't it? Well, before I tell that, can I turn the fair play cards on you for a minute? Of course. One therapist did this and um, I thought it was such a beautiful way to use them years ago. It was when it was still um, on index index cards, but she uh, was helping me beta test it. And what she said she was doing with the cards was she was almost using them with her couples as um, a game in a different way, not the system aspect of actually dividing up the cards and holding it with ownership, but just starting 
for couples who weren't there yet with pulling a card like a tarot reading and just asking somebody to tell one story about what they remember as a child about that card. And I started to do it too. And so so I'm going to ask you to do that. If you would be willing to do that with me, I'm just going to shuffle the deck. Oh, even just I'll tell you when to stop. Okay. And um, let's just, let's just stop and see what we pick when we get to there. Just tell me when to stop. Okay. Stop. Okay. This is the one we picked. Thank you notes. Thank you notes. Do you have any memories of thank you notes as a child? Do you remember if there was any stationery in your house? Do you remember if you sent them out? Did you have to do them for a communion or bar mitzvah? Or do you remember anything about thank you notes or how you express gratitude for things as a child? Wow. I, I'd have to think about it, but I think that I grew up in a home where my mom was really chronically overwhelmed and didn't have a lot of, you know, she married my stepdad when I was five, but I think she kept a pretty tight (laughs) realm of like, you can be over here, but these are my kids and I'm doing it all. And she really truly did do it all. So I suspect that thank you notes were one of the things that just, she couldn't keep it going. And so I don't have memories about- Same, same, by the way. Uh I have no memories Mm -hmm. of thank you notes at all. And I think it's so beautiful that we have that both that same experience because exactly, if you're in an overwhelmed single parent household or in a situation like where you said your mom had full control of the conception, planning and execution, ownership of all the cards, the metaphorical and physical cards, then thank you notes is probably one that sort of goes by the wayside. But what I do remember is just thinking about it now, which I've never really thought about thank you notes because I haven't pulled that one before, is... Like the idea of like stamps and letters were really interesting to me. Like other families, my cousin, they had like stamps and they had like stationery, like things that I always wish I had. And I remember thinking like, how come my house doesn't have any like stationery uh-huh, or stamps? Uh-huh. Was that just for like rich right, people? Right. I remember that feeling like sad that I never got cards in the mail or I felt like other people were going to Hallmark. Yeah, Like I do remember that that was... And by the way, and, and imagine if you're growing up in a household where your partner is somebody where, and this happened to me when I have a friend who, whose partner is from the South and thank you notes and stationery was a part of their family culture. Totally. And so you can imagine that if you're not on the same page with that, if you don't know what your, as we call in fair play, your minimum standard of care is, yeah. whether it's never to thank anybody for anything or to do it over text or to do it with stationery, these are things you're not talking about with your partners. But look, Alexander and I just had like a a connection moment. Yeah, we had a connection. You and I had a connection moment over a similar experience that took us 30 seconds. I don't feel like you overshared. Hopefully you don't feel like I overshared. And it's a way to just to to realize that these are not just chores. There are our humanity. Oh, there are humanity. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So garbage. I'll just finish with garbage. Okay. So garbage was one of those cards that Seth and I drew. Yeah. And what I realized about it was... It was something I could not let go. Seth was willing and 100% understanding of CPE. He sort of helped me develop the framework as he was using it in his organization as like the directly responsible person that he gave people context, not control. He understood that people wouldn't work for him if they walked into his office and said, hey, what should I be doing today, Seth? I'll just wait here to tell me what to do. But he didn't want to live like that anymore in our home. But I still couldn't get over really annoying him, being overwhelming to him about garbage, asking him a million times a day when I was going out. And that's when I realized ownership was not enough. That's why the boundary systems and communication, communication is so key because the key to fair play is having the conversation around what we call now the minimum standard of care. You can't get to a minimum standard of care that you both agree on for that task unless you understand where each other is coming from. When we sat down to talk about garbage, I found out that Seth slept on Domino's pizza boxes in his fraternity and had a housekeeper growing up. He never thought about garbage. Whereas for me, garbage, a sticky floor in my little apartment on Avenue C and 14th Street, when I used to have to put my disabled younger brother to bed when my mother worked nights, garbage was the cockroaches and water bugs that were all over my kitchen when the garbage would be overflowing. And that is what I remember. I remember the routine of closing my eyes, walking into the kitchen, turning on the lights, because that's when the cockroaches and water bugs would scatter when the light was turned on. So you have to wait, you count to 10, 
because then you won't see them anymore. And then you go get your water for your younger brother or whatever you have to do. So when I finally was able to say to Seth, this is my experience around garbage. I think it was the first time where he said, okay, well, I can guarantee you that garbage will go out once a day. Yeah. And it did. It did. And it did. And I, and I hope, and I suspect that every time Seth does that, he knows he's tending to little Eve, right? Like he is offering healing, you know, he's like offering healing to that little girl that didn't have that kind of safety and predictability, you know, so he is like reaching into the past and like nurturing you. I feel that way so much for me when the garbage goes out, it's so much more, it's, it's like the reason why love language is, is what it is. And I think why it became so popular because people were looking for a way to nurture the little Eve to get that generosity. But for me, it's so much more impactful that he puts the garbage liner back in, in my life than if he ever gave me a piece of jewelry. Right. Yep. And that's the part of the conversation that it's so hard for couples to get to because it feels, especially around domestic labor, it's it's concrete, right? It's tangible. You can see it, you can feel it. And so it's a mindset shift for people to understand that the conversation about garbage is here, but we have to really tend to what's deeper. And it's not just rational, logical. It's it's deeper than that. And that's what that's what makes change stick. And I th- I'm sure also he saw the like drop in your shoulders, you know, when he started to do it. And so that feedback loop got closed where he's like, ah, the shit I like doing it differently <laughs> makes a difference. I can make a difference. And back to the, uh, you asked me the beginning about the basketball and exactly. And that's why the butter dish, Alexandra's, you said is never really about the butter dish. But when you asked me in the beginning about this weekend and the communication, I just feel like we're coming full circle to Seth joking with me. He's like, he's like, you're like that like fun dad now who like pops into your kid's life and like, and like, cause I took Anna out to Universal Studios yesterday for a couple hours. Cause we, I just had gotten home from this trip that he was taking. He let me go on this trip, as I said, where he afforded me the opportunity to go on the trip because he was taking the kids to all these basketball things. And he's like, so now you're like that fun dad who just comes in for a couple hours, takes your kids to Universal Studios and then goes back out and travels in the world. I was like, of course, we all want to be like that fun dad. And so I said to him, you know what? The first 10 years I had it now, like you can take from 10 to 20. Like I'm happy for you to be lead parent. But what's nice is that also I think what happens as you can see is that there's a room for humor in the fair play system. There's there's a concept that I try to replace with the word nagging with something called the rat, the random assignment of a task. Like you don't want to have a lot of rats in your home. Otherwise you want to move out. And so like a lot of couples will just text each other, like, sorry, I'm sending you a rat today. Go pick up the flowers for the um, recital. You know, there's a place for some humor and lightness. I think about these conversations in a way where, you know, in the past, I feel like maybe there hasn't been. And when things feel more equitable and there's a more collaborative approach, then you can send a rat as just in a humorous way versus versus like the least you can do is go get the flowers or I'm so exhausted you should pick up the flowers. That's a humongous shift because all that stuff, those one-offs are not going to stop happening. But when things feel inequitable and people feel unseen, then everything comes with that heavy like message of after all I've done for you or the least you could do. And that shit just erodes connection and safety and trust in a marriage. A hundred percent. And I think that exactly, it's not, the ownership mindset is not telling you that if you don't live the fair play lifestyle, it's not, you know, the zone diet doesn't mean if you don't live the fair play lifestyle, a hundred percent, these principles don't work. It just means pick one. Where are you struggling today? You know, pick one. If you're struggling with your permission to be unavailable from your roles, pick boundaries, you know, work on that. Um, You know, maybe listen, journal around that. If you're struggling with systems because things feel like decision fatigue, you know, understand and and learn more about the fair play system. If you're struggling or having a hard time with communication, of course, listen to your podcast, but also before you even start fair play, just start a check-in. See what it feels like to sit for five minutes a day with a timer when you're calm, when emotion is low and cognition is high, and just say to your partner, like, what if we started a practice like exercise of just checking in with each other? You can always work on one element, you know, at, at, at any point. Yeah. I can completely imagine. I mean, it, it's so it's so hopeful that couples who've been doing 
this dance in one way for 10, 20 years, they can start to pivot. And I love the idea of young couples like starting off in this way. I already told you before we started, I've, I've already emailed Northwestern Library to figure out how Yay. we're going to watch Fair Play, the documentary in my Marriage 101 class next year. Like I think it is, it's just, there's, there's so much hope no matter how we do this. And as you said in the film, like the home is dangerous because it presents so small, but you are showing us that it's, it's so big and it's so profound and it's so, it's by no means is it small. Can I read you one thing as we close? Absolutely. Go for it. Uh, this was so powerful to me. I got it, uh, this message in the spring. It's a young couple from Korea, the, the man of the couple, new husband. He wrote, uh, Dear Miss Rodsky, I read your book, Fair Play Project and write this message to express gratitude. I bought this book as one of the husbands in the world. And I confess, I thought I was a fairly good husband, but I was wrong. First of all, it's not supposed to shame men, but I just nope. think that's hilarious that he says that. Nope. Mm-hmm. I strongly believe everyone must read this book before they got married or have a baby. Personally, I lost my sister, who was a high court judge and a mother of two elementary student sons four years ago. It was because a cerebral hemorrhage stroke took her. I believe this disease exploded as she worked too hard and handled too much things during her father-in-law's death, which was just a week before her death. This is a man from Korea. She took care too many things as a full-time worker and a perfectionist judge. I think that this fair play project were spread all over the whole of Korea and every husband executes this project. My sister would still be with us, having a balanced life with her smiling face, which I terribly, terribly miss. Thank you for writing this book, and I will practice this method from now on. Ugh, just, you know, oh, yeah. it is not, this yeah. is not, the stakes are high. That's right. The stakes are high, and this matters. And I can't, it's, I can't think of anything that matters more than this. Right? Yeah. It's not just a butter dish. It's not just garbage, as we said. These are... Um, we're marriage of life and health and life and death for women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and nurturing our next generation who deserves to be raised by parents that feel supported and whole in all yes, of the ways, yes, right? Yes. Okay, Eve. So for people who are wanting to kind of dive deeper, where do you want them to start? We're going to have links to all of you and all of your things in the show notes, but what's a good first step? I'd say following Fair Play Life on Instagram. We put a lot of great resources there, new studies. Or if you want any um, free tools, fairplaylife.com, our newsletter, we always uh, offer free tools for people who are trying to work through these issues. So those are two really good places for people who are interested in in starting, you know, this type of practice. Thank you, Eve, for joining me here on the podcast. I'm so energized by the strategies and solutions that Eve offers up in the face of these age-old problems. And I know they're going to be huge for you and your relationship. So be sure to check out the Fair Play book and the documentary, which are both linked in the show notes of this episode. Until next time, take care of you. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.